0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Answers for Ambassadors with me, David Vogel. So this is going to be our fourth and final episode on life's work by Dr. Willie Parker, a self-declared Christian abortionist. In our first episode, we looked at kind of the big picture, the background of Dr. Parker's story and his basic approach to understanding abortion, his philosophy of abortion, so to speak. In the next two episodes, we considered the actual arguments he makes for why abortion is morally acceptable and considered that fundamental question of what is it, it being the fetus, uh, the nature of pregnancy, uh, abortion itself. Well, in this final episode, I want to step back and take a, a, a broader look to, to think about the big picture question of how do you go from being the church-going kid who wants to be a pastor that Dr. Parker describes from his teen years to a man who can describe himself callously sorting through the body parts of the fetus he has just dismembered to make sure that he's gotten all the pieces and parts. How you can say calmly, quote, I make sure I find every part and I place them together, recreating the fetus in the pan. I have done this so many times that it has become routine, no matter what these parts may look like. This is organic matter that does not add up to anything that can live on its own. How can you declare in the final chapter that uh, we need a new theology of abortion? Because, quote, if God is in everything and everyone, then God is as much in the woman making a decision to terminate a pregnancy as in her Bible what's what's the path <laughs> from a to b from the 15-year-old asking Jesus to come into his heart and then irritating the neighbors passing out gospel tracts to the morally callous abortion doctor fitting an unborn child's dismembered body back together how, how do you how do you how do you go from from one to the other and in some ways, it may seem like that a question is, uh, you know, biographical. It's a question of just, you know, of interest in the life of one particular man. But I think that as extreme as A to B is in the life of Dr. Parker, that, that despite the, uh, the uh, just drama of the swing, in his case, that the path he followed is actually one that is not unusual is one that has been followed by many uh, people who grew up in the church and then drifted away, drifted perhaps not quite so far as the abortion operating room, um, or at least not on the doctor's side of things. Perhaps many of them ended up on the other side of things in that operating room. Um, But anyway, that that path of uh, drifting away from a faith once fervently held at least apparently, it uh, is not particularly unusual. And considering the biography that uh, Dr. Parker weaves into his story, I think can draw out some useful lessons for us as well as we uh, consider you know, our place in, in the family, in the church, uh, and how to <laughs> do better for those around us than those around uh, Willie Parker did for him. And so I, I think if we if we look at this bi- uh, biography, um, he starts with his family, and uh, it is there that these seeds of moral failure are sown. Um, it's interesting he describes how his mother uh, would send his, he and his siblings off to church faithfully. Uh, you know, on Sunday, off to church with you, but she was sending them to church. She didn't go herself and uh in fact uh she was uh, going to be back home with whoever she happened to be living with at the time uh dr parker describes how he's one of six siblings and each of us he says has a different father and he personally he says never knew his father by name or by sight so his mother who incidentally sounds like a woman who worked Absolutely, faithfully to provide for her family, tried to be the best mother she could be. Yet uh, she, she, with her words, you know, sends her children off to church, tells them to be good Christian boys and girls, and yet she herself, and by his account, apparently did not darken the church door, and in her life, utterly contradicted the uh, teachings. That Dr. You know, little Willie, uh, would have presumably, uh, hopefully been taught in that very same church. Now, of course, uh, Willie's mother, um, grew up in very morally difficult surroundings where such behavior was utterly normal, uh, utterly taken for granted. And so it is unlikely that anybody listening to this podcast is uh, <laughs> uh quite quite um letting down uh their children in the way that she tragically did in her moral example, in saying one thing and then living very much the other, showing that in fact, uh in her practical day-to-day life, you know Christianity was completely unimportant to her. Um, but do we not, at times, you know, send that message? You know, think of the times that, by example, if not by word, uh, you know, we communicate to particularly those younger than us, that church is not especially important, that the law of God is not especially important, that you shouldn't break these laws. After all, I'm sure that if Willie had come in having stolen something. <laughs> having killed somebody or even hurt them for no good reason, I'm sure his mother would have been very upset. And yet she had her particular sins which she thought little of. And uh, you know, how many of us also have those those sins which we're more comfortable with, which perhaps we don't even uh, recognize as sins because we've not gone to the trouble of shining the uncomfortable light of what the Bible says on them. And so, whether or not we tell those around us to be Christians, uh, our example says, but really, in my case, it's not especially important. Uh, something, I, for me, it was convicting, and I, I think for all of us, to one degree or another, you know, we need to, to just think of what, uh, what, what message our example conveys to those like little Willie Parker, who are being taught, uh, even when we're not talking. But anyway, uh, Willie grows up in that household, being sent to church, but with little else of Christianity lived around him. And then uh, in his teens, we find him moving on to a different kind of church, and here we encounter a second major failing. And this uh, is a failing of a church, which offers a part of the gospel. What offers that offers what we might dryly describe as bad theology, and that doesn't perhaps sound so bad to some people. Um, you know, theology—what a dry subject! But that dry theology helps to uh, push Doctor Parker along the road to becoming Doctor Parker, the abortion doctor, because theology matters. Theology <laughs> uh, affects our lives. And in the case of Dr. Parker, the theology he learned at this uh, church he began attending, uh, again, different from the one he had grown up in, uh, when he was about 14, um, he was uh, brought into this church, which he describes as having, quote, a vibrant Pentecostalism that started and ended with the importance of the Holy Spirit. Which, of course, I'm all about the Holy Spirit. (laughs) primarily because the Bible is too. Uh, but, but uh, in his telling of what this church taught, there is not a hint of, of repentance, of an idea of a law of God that must be obeyed, uh, no, no idea of a call to personal holiness. In fact, rather, he writes, quote, The Pentecostalism that Mike taught assured me that you didn't have to be a cleaned-up version of yourself to earn these gifts or God's love. You didn't have to work up to anything or gather points in heaven. You didn't have to quit smoking. You didn't have to quit drinking. You didn't have to come to a crisis point and resolve to change your ways. I believe that's a sentence which we could summarize in a word, repentance. So you didn't have to come to a crisis point and resolve to change your ways. The whole point of God was that he loved you in your brokenness, that he didn't need you to be perfect. That was the miracle. Which, uh, oh, it's so, so close to being right and yet so wrong at the same time. It was essentially, again, what's being offered here is not a complete lie, but that most dangerous lie, which has much of the truth in it. Uh, whether or not uh Willie Parker is you know accurately conveying this teaching that he received at least as he describes it, it is a teaching which accurately captures the radical nature of salvation by grace, a salvation that doesn't require you to be perfect, that doesn't require you to build up merit and yet well well this teaches salvation by grace it leaves out that other essential element of christian salvation which is salvation by grace unto holiness this by grace unto holiness is a couplet that we see uh, inextricably bound together throughout the bible that yes god saves us not by our own merit but he doesn't save us to simply be what we were before. And we can see the, the juxtaposition of these two elements that we cannot safely separate. Uh, we can see them, for example, in Ephesians. Uh, and I've literally simply chosen Ephesians as my example because that happens to be the book in the Bible that I'm currently reading through in my personal devotional time. So it was fresh in my mind. <laughs> but there's, and you, you could practically pick uh, any part of the Bible practically any page of the Bible, and you'd likely be able to find these two elements, both essential to the gospel message. So we see in Ephesians 2, uh, beginning at verse 4, Paul writes that uh, God, being rich in mercy... For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Grace, pure grace, a grace that, again, does not require, as Dr. Parker describes, it doesn't require merit, doesn't require building up and scoring of points. And yet, just a few chapters later in Ephesians 4, Paul warns, beginning at verse 17, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, Uh, i'm sorry taught in him just as truth is in jesus that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is created in the likeness of god i'm sorry which in the likeness of god has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth that's what we're saved to. And whenever we have a gospel, so-called, which severs this couplet, which forgets that it is salvation by grace, or that forgets that it is salvation unto righteousness, we end up making for ourselves great, great trouble. <laughs> Again, it is bad theology, but the consequences of bad theology are going to be felt very very tangibly in the lives of those around us. So Dr. Parker uh, grows up in a family where, uh, because of prior generational failure, he also is given a very poor moral example. He's taught by deed, if not by word, that Christianity is unimportant, or at least the fullness of Christianity is unimportant. And then he, uh, again, by his account, goes to a church where uh, what he's taught is an incomplete gospel of bad theology, which emphasizes grace, which emphasizes gifts of the spirit, but has little to say about the uh, what we're saved to, does not offer him that glorious image of the new man reconstructed in Christ, making right, even in this life, beginning to make right what was broken uh, in Adam with the fall, and with a glorious hope ultimately of perfection in heaven with God himself. Little of that. And so with those two failings, those such characteristic failings that lead us, uh, lead so many away from the gospel, Dr. Parker is then set up for his own failing. Because after all, each of us has our own responsibility in any story either of salvation or damnation. And so, Dr. Parker describes, then, with this very weak, uh, flimsy foundation uh, upon which he's building this uh, self-described faith, he arrives in college. And in some ways, we could look at his story, and perhaps simplistically, he becomes another statistic. Another statistic of, you know, a young person who lost his faith in college. But... As we've seen, it was not a healthy faith to begin with. It was primed to be lost, primed to fail well before uh, he ever arrived at college. But he arrives at college with a whole suitcase full of misunderstanding of the actual truth of God or uh, God's religion, of true religion uh and so he's he's primed for what he uh or primed to fail in what he then perceives as this conflict between his faith as he understands it or misunderstands it and what he is now learning and being exposed to at college um and of course his his bad theology makes all of this work worse because he thinks he has to believe things and thinks he has to uh you know affirm things which perhaps are not actually in the bible i want to read to you um, his description of, of his perception of the faith that he held when he entered college and which then begins to trouble him and uh, he begins to uh, you know, be shaken from this, this thing which he perceives as being uh, you know, fundamentalist Christianity. So he says, uh, he entered a phase of questioning. How might I believe that God created the world when I loved biology and knew about evolution? How might I hold the Bible's version of male dominance over women when my mother raised me better than any man? How might I square my church's repugnance for premarital sex with the fact that many good people I knew in the dorms were having sex with regularity? How might I think about slavery and justice and the very punitive terms the Bible sets for the faithful that violate God's rules? How might I think about hell? The black church in which I was raised gave me my life, but it also, I began to see, preserved taboos around subjects where there should have been relief. Not just about abortion, but also homosexuality and sexual abuse. I have come to understand that the entrenchment of patriarchal authority and power, even in the black church, has allowed women who sit in the pews to experience shame and rejection around their sexuality. It has vilified gay men and made lesbians invisible for too many people, God has ceased to be present in the very place that he should live. Now I, I want you, if you if you can, just think about oh what a what a tangled mess that description of his faith is. How much uh, just misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches, how much disregard for what the Bible teaches. Um it's not a simple matter of oh well he's rejecting the Bible. It's not a simple matter of his misunderstanding. It's not a simple matter of, you know, he needs to be better taught the answers. It's a whole, a whole slew of all that, all twisted together. And so, with that uh, poor preparation, he then finds himself in a place where uh, he's very ready to cast aside this poorly understood faith. Um, but of course, it is not entirely a matter of uh, of misunderstanding there is, as in all sin, a healthy dose of, of pride, a healthy dose of uh, self-idolatry. Uh, I find it interesting, as he describes in passing, that he began to understand that, quote, I needed a God of transcendence and justice more than I needed one that enshrined and preserved the Bible's antique patriarchal worldview. Now, put aside this very artificial dichotomy between a god of transcendence and justice versus the god of the bible um but put that aside note again i need this is this is the god that i need i'm starting with what i want and i'm going to create god in that image and so with that you know that attitude it is little surprise then that he describes how in college he began um sort of shifting towards more of a liberation theology, understanding of Christianity, uh, liberation theology being in sort of the Cliff Notes version, basically a, a version of the gospel which has basically lost the gospel by, by localizing it. Uh, in fact, in some ways, it's very uh, reminiscent, actually, of the mistake that the Jews made at the time of Christ when they expected their Messiah to be a liberator in this life, of people like them. Uh, And that was as much as they could dream of the Messiah. That's more or less what liberation theology becomes. Uh, It recognizes very often true abuses, abuses of those with power, abuses of those with money, Abuses of minorities, um, abuses of you know, the disenfranchised and disadvantaged, and all the dis, you know, every, every sort of, of trouble um, that comes upon people. And it wants to, to save them, to fix them, as indeed we ought to desire. But it localizes that gospel message entirely in this life. Jesus becomes a radical, political, uh, you know, um, a freedom fighter. Uh, one who who wants to free the prisoners in this life. And there's no larger gospel hope, no larger gospel meaning. It's all about practical, tangible actions in this life, which are important, of course, but lack that larger context. Once again, a partial, partial theology, a partial gospel. And so with that emphasis on the... Uh, tangible aspects of helping others and a de-emphasis on God's ultimate work of redemption. It is little surprise then that Dr. Parker recounts how he then entered a period of, as he puts it, taking a break from organized religion, where he preferred, he says, to work in the soup kitchen across the road from the church on Sunday rather than going to church itself well he is drawn back to church eventually of a sort and he describes how finally when he was in hawaii uh where he experienced what he calls this conversion moment that i described in our first episode where he concludes that the demand of justice and of love is that he should become an abortionist to provide this service to women who need it when he's in hawaii and he has that experience he's attending a quaker uh or quaker services uh, which which is a whole complicated theology in itself, but for our purposes, it's worth emphasizing the same things which he emphasizes, which are that there are no uh, there's no clergy. There's very little in the way of systematic theology. There's no preaching of God's Word. Uh, Quakers generally in their meetings, um, will gather and essentially meditate and uh, sit quietly, And when one of them feels that uh, the inner light of the Holy Spirit illuminates to their own personal understanding some spiritual truth, then they speak and share it with the group. So again, note that emphasis on self. Note the emphasis on I will perceive, I will not be taught, I will teach myself and those around me out of my inner light. Again, that's a, a term the Quakers use to describe this this personal inspiration from the Spirit to illumine the meaning of the word, which, again, in some senses is true. Yes, the Spirit does help us to understand, the Bible tells. But again, for the Quakers, to the exclusion of any systematic teaching, any you know, trained uh, preacher, in fact, any preaching at all. But we simply rely on that inner light, which... Uh, If if we remember uh, the sober warning of the Bible that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, I am hesitant simply to rely on my own internal compass. But it is that internal compass which then finally brings Dr. Parker to the place where he can comfortably identify himself as a Christian um, and yet write things like this, which I think is a good closing summary, of where he has ended up uh, theologically uh, and particularly on the question of abortion. In fact, uh, this is in a chapter, the final chapter of his book, which he titles A New Theology of Abortion. Here's what is almost his final paragraph, his next-to-last paragraph. Is God vested one way or another in whether you as an individual become pregnant? No. No. Is a pregnancy sacred because there will be a baby, ultimately, in a bassinet? Beautiful? Maybe the next Obama? No. The process is bigger than you are. The part of you that's like God is the part that makes a choice. That says, I choose to, or I choose not to. That's what's sacred. That's the part of you that's like God to me. And so the end of life's work really, in my mind, brings us back to the beginning of the Bible, to another person or another being that said, yes, just choose, just choose what you want, and that'll make you like God. That being was the serpent, and he told Eve, and she chose, and it didn't work out so well for Eve, for Adam, uh, or for the rest of the human race. Generally, when we decide that the thing which is most important about us is simply to choose not to listen to God, certainly not to obey God in what He, from His position of authority, has revealed to us, but rather indeed to be like God, rather, in fact, to take God-like prerogative to ourselves and to say, "Yes, I do choose, and this is what I will do, and this is what I will be." It's a recipe for spiritual disaster. And unfortunately, it is a a place that moral failings of of family, of example, of church, of bad theology and its practical implications sets many, many people up for today. And if we want to prevent more Dr. Parkers, we must think about those, those seeds that are sown into the lives of young people before they get to college, before they make the shipwreck of their faith to give them a faith that can withstand the questions that are going to come against them. I can't help thinking that it would be a glorious, heavenly irony if, considering the story of a man who has taken so many young lives, would yet spur us to be instruments that God could use to reach out to the the next young Willie Parker. And perhaps to to save not only his life, but his soul as well.